You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord now, that is such an important prayer for us. Blessed be your name. Good times and bad, when the sun's shining down on me, when things are all as they should be. Blessed be your name. And when, when things aren't right and I'm on that desert road, blessed be your name. It's good for us to pray that. Uh, maybe David prayed like that too. We have a, a tough lesson today. It's just it's tough to read. It's tough to process. It's so, so important for us. So a quick note to uh, parents of young children, if they're old enough to understand the, the lesson, uh, you may want to take advantage of Children's Church uh, today and next week. It looks like I think most everyone has. Today's lesson and next week's lesson both are pretty tough. Uh, dark material from the life of David, from uh, a, a difficult and, and uh, dark time in, in his life. Today's lesson includes sexual sin and murder. may not be appropriate for young children. It's not something we like to read either. You know, David in, in Scripture is such a, a godly man almost all the time, that it's, it's hard to imagine that he did things so terrible, so selfish, so horrific, but, I mean, the reality is just that he did. It, it happened. David is a typical human being, only magnified. It seems like everything he does is big. Uh, the first enemy he slays in battle is a giant, and then when David, when, when David worships God, his, his worship is profound in his psalms. He writes some of the most beautiful prayers of worship that we have in Scripture, um, so, uh, words of worship. And then his, his prayers are, are so poignant. David is powerful when he worships. And when he, when he sins, he sins big Seems like David is incapable of doing anything small. He's a typical human being, only magnified. He epitomizes the glorious beauty of human beings, the, the beauty that we all possess inherently because we were made in the image of God. And yet he also epitomizes our fallenness from God's image, our vast propensity to sin, and how much evil we can do in our sin. He's like the best and the worst in all of us at the same time. And so David is a prime example of why we do not put our trust in any human being except one. Jesus alone lived a perfect life. He was thoroughly tempted, yet did not sin. Unlike his ancestor David, he never used his power to please himself, but always to please God. Unlike David, who this one time took another man's life to protect his own, Jesus gave his own life to save us. Jesus is greater than David. And David, in his fallibility, reminds us that any of us can fall. And just as importantly, no matter how hard we fall, our God is merciful when we repent and turn to him. 
You might remember that back in the story of David and Goliath, we noticed that David had some interest in the rewards that would come to the person who slew the enemy Philistine. The spoils of victory, we might say. He went around asking what will be done for the person who accomplishes this feat. And that was natural and fine. But we see today that when David has become powerful, when he is king, he still has that thirst for the benefits of victory and position. And now he has the power to take whatever he desires. So one night, the benefit that he sees and desires is a woman. A woman who is not his. Let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace, of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. It's just unthinkable that a godly man like David, a faithful man like David, would do something like this. But then again, how many godly Christian leaders have we heard about over the years, over the decades, who fell to sins of greed or lust, who have done things that we never thought they would possibly do? Not making any excuses for David here. What he did was evil. I'm just saying he's not alone in his ability to be absolutely faithful to God one day and then sin terribly the next. So as great a king as David was, as godly a man as he was almost his whole life, we ought not to get too comfortable with him. We definitely should not be comfortable with this story. David is deeply flawed. He falls to temptation, and in his uncontrolled desire, he does evil. He longs to be a man of God. That's been the direction of his life. That's what he wants But he is also broken by his sin. He is a broken man, like many of us, needing to be redeemed by God's mercy. Two things to notice here briefly. First, David is entirely selfish here. He's not thinking about God. He's not thinking about Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He's not probably not even thinking about Bathsheba, except in the wrong ways. He sees, he desires, he takes. Notice the word sent in the story. That verb, sent. 
uh, throughout, throughout the story, in these verses and beyond. So here in verse 1, he sent Joab out with the army. That's what kings do, right? Verse, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> verse 3, he sent someone to find out who the woman he saw was. Verse 4, he sent messengers to get her. David is in the position of power here. He does whatever he wants to do. He sends whomever he wishes to send. But then his sin starts to catch up with him. Verse 5, Bathsheba does the sending. She sent word to David to tell him she was pregnant. Suddenly David's not in full control anymore. He's in trouble. Second thing to notice here, all the blame here and throughout the story, the way the Bible tells it, is placed on David. Okay, just notice that Scripture never says that Bathsheba did anything wrong. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't, but Scripture never mentions it if she did. And it sort of makes sense, right? When the king sends for you, doesn't matter who you are, you have to come. You don't have a choice. Bathsheba didn't have any choice. Didn't matter if she was married to another man. The king sent for her. So as far as we know, she, she had no option. So we should not be quick to blame her for what David did. In Scripture, all the blame is on David. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, Bathsheba, she shouldn't have been up there bathing on the roof where he could see her. But notice what verse 2 says. Who was on the roof? David was on the roof of his palace walking around. We don't know where she was. She could have been in her private courtyard at night thinking it was safe. Uh, she might have been in the house and he saw her through a window. We don't know. It was David. His palace was up on the hillside above the city. He could look down from his roof and see lots of homes, neighborhoods, businesses down there below him. He could have glimpsed her through you know, a window or in the courtyard or something. There's nothing in the text that says Bathsheba was trying to entice him. As far as we can tell, this is David's sin, not hers. And that's where Scripture focuses our attention. And David already had several wives. 2 Samuel 5, verse 13, indicates that David had a number of wives and concubines at this time. Why is he now looking at someone else's wife? So David has no excuse. But he's in trouble. She's pregnant. And her husband Uriah who, by the way, 2 Samuel 23, verse 39, lists as one of David's elite soldiers. He's one of David's 30 mighty men. He is away with Joab and his army and has been for a little while, apparently. He's not home. Bathsheba's child is not his. What will David do? Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, 
and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David, he's king. He can do what he wants. By his power as king, he got what he wanted. Bathsheba's husband was killed. David married her. Now everyone will think, <coughs> excuse me, that the baby was conceived after the marriage. Except, probably somebody's going to figure it out, you know. The palace servants, some of them at least, knew what had happened. Knew They'd been sent to bring Bathsheba, that she had come. She'd stayed a little while with David. She went back. It won't be long before everyone knows that she's pregnant. They'll be able to count the weeks from that night until the baby's born and figure out what happened. But even if no one in the palace had figured out yet what David had done, and they probably, some of them probably had, God knew. Nothing is hidden from God. So, in fact, when Joab says in verse 25 to tell Joab about Uriah being killed, don't let this upset you, you know, trying to encourage Joab. Um, In Hebrew, David literally says, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Don't let this be evil 
in your eyes. The evil that he has done, that Joab went along with, maybe or maybe not, understanding why, uh, the evil that David had done in causing an innocent man to die to hide his own sin, don't let this be evil. But in verse 27, this, that same Hebrew word for evil is repeated when it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. In Hebrew, it literally says what David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He said, oh, don't, don't let it be evil. God said, it's evil. He saw it all, and it was evil. David has worked so hard to hide the evil he has done. Remember how he sent for Bathsheba? Now he sends for Uriah. But when Uriah comes, he won't go spend time with his, his wife while the rest of the army is out fighting. He's an honorable man. So David sends him back to the war, makes him carry to Joab the orders for his own death. And when Uriah is dead, it looks like David's in the clear. No one will find out what he's done. It's finished and gone. But God knew what had happened. And God steps in. It always happens eventually. He is judge and ruler over all. He is going to make things right. He either does it in this life or at the final judgment. He always takes control eventually. And so the next line in the story, opening chapter 12, says the Lord sent Nathan, a prophet, to David. It was David doing all the sending. Now the Lord is doing the sending. Chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. 
But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And suddenly David, who seemed so strong, so in control earlier, is utterly broken. His evil is exposed now to the whole nation. Everyone's going to hear about it. His future is prophesied to be turbulent, and his newborn son is dead. Nathan the prophet knew that David had a keen sense of godly justice, and he used it to catch David, to make him condemn himself. You are the man. You're the rich man who took the poor man's lamb. Except it wasn't the lamb, it was the man's wife. You had plenty, and if you needed more, God would have given you more. Yet you took the one wife Uriah had, and then you killed Uriah. And you despised the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. Why did you do this? And David, to his credit, is immediately broken. And that's a good Thing. The main difference between King David and King Saul before him is not that one sinned and the other didn't. Both sinned, and badly. The difference is that David was broken by his sin, and he repented. Saul never did, not really. And when David repented, he repented all the way. He made no excuses. He blamed no one but himself. He simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. There's a hinge in this story where everything is dark, but then suddenly we have a ray of hope. And the hinge is David saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And he takes responsibility for what he's done, finally. In response, Nathan says, God has forgiven David's sin. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 in the Law of Moses um, says that a man who commits adultery with another man's wife is to be put to death. That's what David deserves by law. But on the basis of David's repentance, God forgives him, lets him live. Nathan says in verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, even though David deserves to die. But God is merciful to us. 
when we despise our sin and turn back to him. And yet, because David is king and he has shown contempt for the Lord by his sin and the whole nation either knows what he's done or is going to know what he's done, they're going to be watching to see, does God do anything about this or can we just get away with this kind of thing? God has to discipline David publicly. Israel needs to know that in their nation, the king is not the final authority. God is. And so David's son becomes sick and dies. And David grieves and fasts and pleads with the Lord those seven days, but God holds firm. God is stern with us when we sin. He is often stern and merciful at the same time. And frighteningly, Nathan prophesies in verses 10 to 12 that terrible things are going to happen to David and his house, his family, in days to come because of what David did to Bathsheba and Uriah. As David wielded the sword against Uriah for his own purposes, so now the sword will never depart from his house. There's going to be violence in his own family. And as David took another man's wife, so someone else will take David's wives. We'll look at the fulfillment of that prophecy next week. One more lesson from this dark period in David's life. Yet in this darkest moment of David's life so far, there is one light, one ray of hope. It comes from God because our hope always comes from God. God, you know, he didn't have to confront David about his sin. God could have simply struck David down for what he'd done. It would have only been what David deserved. But God sent Nathan the prophet to confront him. Why did God send Nathan the prophet to confront him? Because God wanted to show him mercy. He's given David a second chance. Even when God confronts us about our sin, he is showing us mercy, giving us a chance to turn away from it because he loves us and longs to redeem us. If David is any example, God is merciful beyond our understanding. I mean, if God could forgive David for what he did, whom could he not forgive? And it's, it's not fair forgiveness It's not fair to Bathsheba. It's not fair to Uriah. They deserve justice for what David did to them, especially if we assume that Bathsheba wanted no part of what David brought her in to do. But on the basis of David's repentance, God chooses to show mercy. David still has a high price to pay for what he has done, and he still has to face terrible consequences in his future, but he is forgiven too, and he's reconciled to God. Why would God ever forgive a person for committing such deeds? Because he loves us so much. If he doesn't forgive us, we have no hope, and he knows that. We would remain broken all our lives and then face his judgment. But God loves us so much that even as he holds us accountable for our sin, he also sets us free from it. And so when all is done, After David's child dies, when God has enforced some justice but has forgiven David as well, David washes himself, gets dressed, goes into the house of the Lord and worships. Somewhere around this time, he writes the words of Psalm 51. This psalm is one of the best examples in the Bible of how to speak to God when we've sinned, how to repent. There's a little introduction to the psalm. 
It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this is David's prayer at that time. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We sang those words a few minutes ago. Do not cast me away from your, cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David's prayer as he confessed his sin to God. The most important lines in this psalm might be verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David understood the heart of God. When we sin, it's not a sacrifice or some kind of payment or penance that God wants most from us. Um, if, if we've sinned and, and we give more money to the church, that's not God want, what God wants us to do to make up for our sin. What God wants most is is us. He wants our broken spirit, a spirit that is no longer defiant, no longer self-centered, no longer looking for the benefits of power, no longer hiding our sin, but broken, humble, ready to submit to God, ready to obey Him again, seeking Him, crying out to Him. That kind of spirit God can work with. That kind of spirit God can heal and restore and trained to do what is right. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 12 again, to wrap up our text, after David repents and after his son dies, God shows his love to David again. Chapter 12, verse 24 says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. Solomon. The Lord loved him 
And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. The Lord loved this new baby boy, Solomon, who we find out later will be the next king of Israel. God forgave David. He blessed David in Bathsheba. We can't undo our sin. We can't can't go back in time and, and fix it and not do it. David certainly couldn't undo his. Sometimes we can make amends. Sometimes, as in David's case here, making amends is just impossible. There's just no way to do it. David couldn't bring Uriah back. But always, we can turn to God with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, and find mercy. No excuses for David. He's such a prime example of the magnificent potential for human beings both to excel in goodness and to plummet into darkness. I mean, he's, he's got both sides here. He is not Jesus. But his story is a prime example of the magnificent reach of God's mercy and grace. That when we come to God with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, he forgives us. There may still be consequences we must face for what we've done, but God immediately begins to restore us and heal us and make things right. It was for that reason that Jesus died. The one human being who never sinned, who we can look up to as the perfect example of how a human being should live. He died so that we, like David, might be forgiven as we turn away from our sin and come to God. May God bless you today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we acknowledge that we also have sinned. And Lord, each one of us who has has come to faith in Jesus, been baptized in him, has had uh, our sins washed away in the the water and by by Jesus' blood that was sacrificed on the cross for us. And we praise you, Lord. And yet we struggle with sin. And it it continues to uh, tempt us and try to lure us into doing what is evil in your eyes. And Lord, sometimes we we stumble. Sometimes we fall. Help us, Lord, to do what's right. Keep our eyes focused on you, Lord. And Father, we pray that concerning those times when we have sinned or when we might sin, we pray that we never would, but if we do, or if we already have, Lord, hear our prayer as we come to you with a broken spirit and plead with you for forgiveness. For you have forgiven us before and and you forgave David and we know you'll forgive us again. We know if you can forgive David, you can forgive anyone. Lord, forgive us too. Cast us not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. But restore to us the joy of your salvation. We look to you for healing. We look to you for all of our hope. Father, bless our church. Help us to be a church that is holy, that does what is good in your eyes. Whatever sin is among us, we pray that you would, that you would root it out and that you would let us repent of it and seek you again. Bless us, Lord, in our lives, in our, our homes, with our families, with our friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, and in our community. Lord, help us to do what is good and pleasing in your eyes that we may always honor you in everything we do, for you are our God, and we are so grateful for Jesus our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.